Before we begin this week's episode of Nordic True Crime, we would just like to give a shout out to our good friend Katarina, who was kind enough to lend her voice to the Danish-speaking part of this week's episode. Thank you, Katarina. We would also like to say a big thank you to our newest patron, Rebecca Ashley. Thank you for becoming a part of the show. It's very much appreciated. You too can become a patron of Nordic True Crime. And for just $5 per month, you will receive a sticker, one extra episode every month, and of course, access to previously uploaded Patreon episodes. To sign up, find us at patreon.com forward slash Nordic True Crime or click on the link in the show notes. A killer and rapist is on the loose on the island of Amar, on the outskirts of Copenhagen, Denmark. He will go on to evade the police for an astonishing 23 years. Throughout this time, he will carry out several attacks on numerous unsuspecting women. This is Nordic True Crime. On the 15th of February, 1987, 73-year-old Edith's upstairs neighbor was beginning to get very frustrated, annoyed, one might say. At around 7.30pm that evening, the sound on Edith's television was gradually getting louder and louder. Her neighbor decided to give Edith a call to see what was going on, but she didn't pick up her phone. Eventually, the neighbor realized that they wouldn't be getting any kind of answer from Edith, so gave up. The next day, a strong smell of gas was present and spreading throughout the stairwell. It was coming from Edith's apartment. Despite knocking on her door numerous times, Edith's neighbors got no reply and therefore began to fear that something really bad had happened. The police and two gas technicians arrived on the scene and together they broke down Edith's door. Inside, 
the apartment looked like it had been ransacked, and the smell of gas was overpowering. It was coming from two gas taps in the kitchen that had been opened, allowing it to flow freely out in the apartment. Just outside the kitchen, on top of a small table, there stood a lit candle. Someone had obviously tried to manufacture a gas explosion. They quickly put the candle out and continued their search for Edith. They find her lying in the kitchen underneath a carpet, dead. The autopsy report would later reveal that she had been strangled to death and her killer had also stolen some jewellery before fleeing the scene. In order to try and establish some kind of timeline around the crime, the detectives start from 7.30pm when the sound on Edith's television was turned up and when her neighbour tried to call her to complain about the noise. It was of course thought from the start of the investigation that it was the killer who turned up the volume on Edith's television in order to try and mask any sound coming from the apartment whilst he or she carried out the attack. They had also made a calculation of when the gas taps were turned on and came to the conclusion that they were opened at around 10.30am the morning after the murder. This, of course, meant that the killer must have returned to the scene of the crime the following day in order to open the gas taps or even spend the night at Edith's apartment after killing her. The police quickly had a suspect, a young man who worked for a removal company who about six weeks earlier had helped Edith move some furniture. His name was Marcel Lucao Hansen. Marcel was born in 1965 and had a seemingly good upbringing. According to his former childhood friend, he wasn't the most book-smart person, but he was really good at football and never backed down from a fight, regardless of how much bigger his opponent was. In his teenage years, he began committing petty crimes, such as stealing cigarettes and spirits. But this soon escalated to housebreaking, stealing jewellery and other valuables. He would even sneak into his victims' bedrooms, ransacking their bedside cabinets, whilst they slept just a few feet away. In 1984, he was caught with a rifle in the trunk of his car and was subsequently charged by the police. 
so he wasn't exactly unknown to them when he was questioned about Edith's death. The investigators discover a shoe print in Edith's apartment on top of the lid of a box of chocolates and the impression matched both the size and type of print to that of Marcel's Adidas training shoe. They were certain that they had found their killer. But there was one major stumbling block. Marcel had an alibi. The day after the murder, at 10.30 a.m., when the killer would have returned to Edith's apartment to turn on the gas, according to the investigator's calculations, Marcel was sitting in a removal van together with two other colleagues on their way to a job. Marcel was excused from the investigation. The police had to look elsewhere for their killer. A short while after the murder, Marcel paid a visit to his friend Tino, who bought and sold stolen goods. He sold him several necklaces and other jewellery, which he had brought with him. A couple of days later, Tino saw a picture of Edith in the newspaper, and he immediately recognised the necklace she was wearing. It was the same one that Marcel had sold to him just a few days before. Tino now knew, of course, that Marcel had killed the elderly lady, but he decided to keep his mouth shut and not tell the police. Partly because he didn't want the police to start investigating his own shady business, but also because he feared how Marcel would react to him, snitching on him. And so, Marcel was never charged with the murder of Edith. As well as this, the detectives failed to recognize that their calculated time of 10.30 a.m. when the gas was turned on was completely wrong. An error that would in turn have devastating consequences. Three years later, on the 29th of August, 1990, 40-year-old school teacher Lene Bukhar Rasmussen vanished on her trip to the nature park on the island of Amar. When she doesn't return home, a search party is called out to try and find her. After five days of searching, her abandoned bicycle is found in the bushes not far from the footpath in the nature park. Cadaver dogs are called in, and it doesn't take long before they find something hidden not that far from when the bike was found. Under a pile of branches, they find Lena's lifeless body. 
According to the pathologist, she had been strangled to death, and evidence showed that she most likely had been raped before being murdered. Investigators managed to find several DNA traces of the killer on Lena's clothes. But since this was 1990, there wasn't any database which they could run their findings through. They could only compare DNA samples from people that were suspects. So the police wasted no time in trying to find the culprit. They questioned over 700 people who had been in or around the nature park in the days leading up to Lena's disappearance, but they got no breakthrough. The public were then urged to phone the police if they had any relevant information that could help the investigation further. Among one of the callers was a man in his 30s who had been doing some bike training in the same area where Lena had vanished from on the 29th of August. When he spoke to the police on the phone, he began by telling the officer about one person he had seen that day who had been standing a bit away from him and had turned away from him just as he was passing on his bike. But because the person in question was a fair distance away from the cyclist, he couldn't tell for sure whether it was a man or a woman. This made the police officer laugh, and he replied in a condescending tone. If that was the case, he should probably be wearing glasses. This comment made the caller very angry. He was just trying to help, and if this was the thanks he was getting for his help, then he was having none of it. So he hung up the phone, mid-conversation. If he would have stayed on the line, he would have told the police about the second person he had met that day on his bike round. His old classmate, Marcel Lequeau Hansen. But since the police never received this information, Marcel was never questioned and therefore never DNA tested. So Lena's murderer remained at large. Marcel had escaped justice again and the case went cold. Five years later, on the 19th of December, 1995, a 23-year-old woman was visiting her sister at her apartment on Amar. Her sister was starting work early that morning, so left the 23-year-old sleeping in the house and left for work. On the bottom floor apartment, at the same time, Three young girls were asleep. 
the oldest girl, who was 15 years old, lived in the apartment together with her mother, but she was not at home, and the girl had her 14-year-old twin friends sleeping over. The four girls had no idea of the nightmare that awaited them. About an hour after the 23-year-old girl's sister had gone to work, a man had crawled through a basement window of the house where the girls were sleeping. The man was Marcel. He forced his way up to the 23-year-old's bedroom on the first floor and brutally awoke her. At knife point, he dragged her from her bed and down to the basement where the three younger girls were sleeping. They were, of course, all terrified. He tied their hands with some skipping rope he had found inside the house and pulled pillowcases over their heads, telling them, You shall not look at me. You are not allowed to see my face. He was very aggressive and was shouting at the scared and shaking girls. He was stabbing the table with the knife and demanded the security code to a bank card he had stolen from the 23-year-old. He also forced all of the girls to give him their CPR number. A Danish CPR number is the equivalent of a social security number, and almost everything you do in life is connected to this number. Marcel then forced one of the 14-year-old twins to go with him to the upstairs bathroom, where he raped her. He had told the other girls that if anyone tried to escape, he would kill the 14-year-old. Too scared to do anything, the three girls waited in the basement, absolutely terrified. Marcel brought all of the girls up to the bathroom, one after another, and raped them. After he was finished, he demanded that they all give him their full names and addresses, which he wrote on a piece of paper that he put in his pocket. He then ransacked the house, taking all of the jewellery, leaving the four petrified girls tied up inside. He had by that time been in the house for two terrifying hours. Since Marcel had been wearing gloves during the attack, no fingerprints were found in the house. But he had been briefly taking them off when he was tying their hands together with the skipping rope which he had left behind, along with the kitchen knife. The evidence was stored by the detectives in the hope 
that they would be able to find some DNA traces in the future. It would take 15 years before modern technology would be able to retrieve any DNA traces from the items. Meanwhile, Marcel was free on the lookout for his next victim. In the early hours of the 3rd of May 2005, a student at the Amar College heard a scream coming from the 24-year-old student's room next door. But since everything went suddenly quiet, the student soon forgot about the incident. However, inside the room, a nightmare was taking place. Marcel had broken into the woman's small room and attacked her. He put a blindfold on her and warned her that if she as much as caught a glimpse of his face, he would kill her. The woman was understandably frozen with fear. Marcel repeatedly raped her and even forced her to choose what kind of assault he should carry out on her. When it was finished, almost two hours later, he made her get into the shower to wash herself clean, getting rid of any traces of him which she had left behind on her body. For the same reason, he also removed all the bed linen and brought them with him when he left, before threatening her one last time, saying, If you tell the police about this, I will bring a friend with me the next time. Even though Marcel thought he had removed any traces of him being in the woman's room, he had made one huge mistake. During the assault, he had suddenly stopped and walked over to the fridge to have a drink. Even though the woman was blindfolded, she could still tell it sounded like he had been drinking straight from the milk carton. And if so, he would have left his DNA there for the investigators to find. Sure enough, traces of an unknown male DNA were found on the carton. But there were also traces of the 24-year-old student's DNA. So the trace was a mixture of both of them. And therefore, the sample couldn't be used to search for a match for the culprit in the database. The only way was to match the sample to any particular suspect who they could bring into custody. Once again, Marcel slipped through the hands of the police and continued to live his double life. He was actually married 
and had been so for 22 years. And together, he and his wife had two teenage sons. Since the year 2000, he had also worked as a football coach for a youngsters team, where he was very well-liked. According to his former colleagues, they had talked about the horrible rape attacks that had happened in Amar, totally oblivious to the fact that the rapist was standing right next to them. Marcel even commented, I hope that they catch him someday. That bastard should have his balls cut off and then should be thrown in a hole. He had also urged the parents of the young female players to pick them up after training so that they didn't have to walk home alone. Who knows what could happen to them. In 2007, Marcel and his wife divorced and he started dating a woman. But the relationship ended after a few years and Marcel began living alone. On an early morning in September of 2010, yet another attack took place. A 17-year-old girl was walking the 500 meters from the metro station to her parents' garden house. She was strolling along happily whilst listening to music in her earphones. She was singing along to the songs, unaware of the danger that was approaching. All of a sudden, a man grabs her from behind and puts his hand over her mouth. It's Marcel. She is in a state of sheer panic and kicks and screams as much as she can. She ends up on the ground and in a desperate attempt, she pretends to be suffering from an asthma attack, hoping that the attacker will let her go. But he just looks at her and says, Drop the act. This is far from over. And he drags her into an area near the garden houses. The girl manages to get her phone out and dial her mother's number without Marcel noticing. Her father answers and she shouts, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. Marcel then realizes what is happening and hangs up the call. He throws her onto the grass, puts on a condom and rapes her twice. During the assault, the girl's mobile phone continually rings on the grass beside them. It's the girl's father frantically trying to get in touch with his daughter, terrified of what may be happening to her. 
when she doesn't pick up her phone, he decides to go outside to see if he can find her. But he's not even sure if she's even in the area. So he turns back home when he realizes he's not going to be able to find her. At the same time, only 300 meters away from the house, Marcel is finished with his attack. He told a girl to count to 5,000 while he fled the scene. The girl is sobbing and scared, counting slowly, but when she's sure that he has left, she gets up and runs the short distance to her parents' garden house. They immediately call the police, who search the area using a canine unit, and it doesn't take long before one of the dogs makes a discovery. A discarded, used condom in one of the bushes nearby. It is sent for analysis, and on the 21st of October, 2010, the test results are ready. The DNA found on the condom also ties the attacker to the murder of Lena in the nature park back in 1990 and the rape of the 24-year-old woman at Amar College in 2005. The police had their DNA profile but were lacking the suspect so they decided to ask the public for help and to step forward with any observations or information they may have which may help to solve the case. And just two days later, an elderly woman phones the police with some information, which in turn leads to an arrest. It was the mother of the man who 20 years earlier had phoned the police hotline but had hung up when he was thought that the police officer wasn't taking him seriously. She said, in 1990, her son had been training in the nature park and had met his former classmate, Marcel Lucao Hansen. When the police heard this, alarm bells started ringing and Marcel was brought in immediately for questioning and for a DNA swab. On the 12th of November, the results were in. It was a match. Marcel was arrested. The police then started to look into other possible attacks that Marcel might be behind. Among these was the murder of Iadid in 1987. And it was at this time the detectives realized that the complicated calculation of when the gas was turned on in Iadid's apartment was incorrect and instead showed that the gas would have been able to have been turned on just after the murder. Meaning 
that Marcel could have committed the crime. Furthermore, after 23 years of silence, Marcel's friend comes forward with the information regarding Edith's stolen necklace. It was sold to him by Marcel. In addition to these attacks, it came to light that Marcel had raped the four girls during 1995 after his DNA was matched to the traces left on the skipping rope and the knife that was left behind at the house. During his time in jail, Marcel came up with a plan to try and avoid justice yet again. He smuggled out a package to his son with a rubber glove containing his semen. He wrote a letter with instruction for his son to follow. He wanted him to attack a woman of his choice and then plant the semen on her body in an attempt to try and deceive the police and make them think there was another person out there with the same DNA as Marcel, proving that he was innocent. However, it all fell through when his son's girlfriend found the plastic glove at their house and became suspicious, so decided to hand it over to the police. On the 19th of December, 2011, Marcel was sentenced to life in prison. People in the courtroom were cheering and the father of one of the victims yelled which roughly translated means well that will teach you, you pig. Justice had finally been served. A small victory for his many victims who have to carry the mental scars of what he had subjected them to for the rest of their lives. Welcome to Point Blank, True Crime Podcast. This podcast will cover stories on murder, disappearances, mass shootings, mysteries, and all things true crime. If you're interested in listening, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, 
Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening. Now back to your scheduled program. is the legal principle of intent that must be proved in a number of crimes, such as murder. It means literally, the guilty mind. The Mens Rea podcast explores the most notorious crimes from Ireland and the UK, and the court cases that followed. Every fortnight, a new case is discussed. So if you like hard-hitting, in-depth true crime podcasts, head on over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from and subscribe to the Mens Rea podcast today.